Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm James Blitz, standing in for Gideon Rackman. This week, as protests in Cairo entered their third week... President Mubarak sent a defiant message saying he would not resign. How can the standoff in Egypt be resolved? In Ivory Coast, the recent election was supposed to herald a new president, but Laurent Gbagbo is still hanging on to power. We hear the latest from the country and ask what impact the deadlock is having on the economy of what was once one of West Africa's most affluent states. And the race to succeed Jean-Claude Trichet as president of the European Central Bank became murkier this week as Axel Weber, Germany's Bundesbank president, indicated he might not run for the post. Who are the other German candidates and how much of a blow would Weber's withdrawal be for Angela Merkel? Joining me on the line from Cairo is our correspondent, Heba Saleh. We're also joined on the line by Tobias Buck in Jerusalem and later I'll be speaking to Quentin Peel in Berlin. Welcome to you both. Let's start with Egypt. Heber, it's extraordinarily difficult. Things are changing so fast. We're speaking now on Friday afternoon, the day after President Mubarak said he would stay on. What's your reading of the situation now? Well, my reading is that the regime totally rejects the idea that the president, the head of the regime, can be unseated by protests on the street. I imagine that they, too, believe that they don't have interlocutors on the other side. They look at this huge popular revolution with no leaders, and I think it just scares them. They don't know who they can talk to there. So what they are doing are small concessions, usually very late, and these concessions do not satisfy the street. So Mr. Mubarak said yesterday that he would change five articles in the Constitution and abolish uh, another article which would theoretically open the way to doing away with emergency legislation. If he had said that two weeks ago, people would have been happy, but he waited for so long that it had almost no effect. What we've had today is the army saying we will guarantee the implementation of these demands, but still people think this is very vague and they're not happy. Now, President Mubarak and his family, according to wire reports, have gone down to Sharm el-Sheikh. I imagine that's in part for security reasons, because the, the, the crowd is now enormous. But that is quite an embarrassing situation for him to be in now, not to be in Cairo. That must have weakened his position, surely. Probably has, but the president is so disliked now that I don't think people will see his uh, his departure to Sharm el Sheikh as uh, as anything other than in keeping with their image of him. They feel that he is arrogant, that he is aloof, that he is contemptuous of them. People really didn't like it when he went on television yesterday 
a week after young protesters had been killed by thugs in Tahrir Square, and it was only yesterday that he spoke of them as martyrs and uh, spoke of them as our children. People are saying, where was he a week ago? This is cynical. Yes. One assumes, if one tries to look ahead at what will happen, that the army will ultimately side with the protesters and sideline Mubarak. I think that is the assumption that many Western experts, I imagine many Western governments are making. Is that broadly how you see things developing, that ultimately that is the natural flow of events going forward? Or do you think it might be different, sort of much more chaotic, perhaps the army fragmenting? Well, that is certainly the hope of the protesters. And because the army has so far played a neutral role, because it has consistently refused to shoot uh, or use violence against the protesters, because it has given assurances that it would not use violence, all this has made the people trust it and respect it. But it is very, very difficult to read. The army is very much part of the system and part of the regime. Mr. Mubarak is the commander-in-chief. We we do not really know how middle-ranking people in the army feel. We we uh, we know that the army is being forced to pl- to play a role now the uh, to maintain the balance a role that it has not played in the past because it has always been very much in the shadows but it, it is very very difficult to predict so so everything is possible now. Certainly people are hoping that the army would force Mr. Mubarak now. The uh, uh, protesters would like the army, some protesters, I have to say because nobody speaks for all the people on the street, would like the army uh, to take another step and instead of just giving guarantees to uh, explain uh, in more detail how it sees the implementation of the Constitution amendments promised by Mr. Mubarak to commit to holding new elections and to commit to a time frame. Uh, this has been this is uh, a demand that has been launched today, but we don't even know if the army will respond to this. What finally do you think is making Mubarak feel that he can stay on in the end? I mean, to an outsider, it's looking so difficult. You've got huge crowds on the streets. You had a very strong sense yesterday of the army moving against him. What is there any power base that he is effectively calculating is in his favour? Or, or does he perhaps feel that the demonstrations that we are seeing, the Western media is seeing, don't actually represent the broad mass of public opinion in Egypt? It really is very difficult to know what Mr. Mubarak is thinking because every time he speaks, he reveals that he is very, very out of touch with the mood of Egyptians. But what I imagine is that he believes that he has support within the regime, within the army. This is a very authoritarian system, and it... I think it would the whole system and not just Mr. Mubarak would see it as an insult to its prestige to be overthrown by by popular protests and I think like all authoritarian systems it believes it knows what's best for the country so uh, it is just not going to listen to young people on the street or disaffected people on the street. 
Hebasale in Cairo, thank you. And now let me turn to Tobias Buck in Jerusalem. Tobias, what's the mood like in Israel about all this? The sense one gets is that the Israelis have by and large been pretty alarmed by the whole thing more than anything else, not particularly welcoming, wel- welcoming these demonstrations and, uh, and fearing that this is going to make life more difficult. That seems to be the Netanyahu regime, the Netanyahu government's approach. Uh, yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's not just, um, uh, to be clear, the, the government's approach. It is an opinion that is very widely shared and very widely articulated also in the Israeli opposition by military leaders, by think tankers and so forth. I mean, the, where Israel really departs, I think, from many Western analysts and indeed from many Arab analysts uh, is, is that there is a, a sort of a conviction that ultimately what will happen if the regime uh, falls in, in, in Cairo, if there are open, free and fair elections, is that somehow the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamists, will take uh, control of the most important country in the Arab world. They're basically saying this is a sort of Iran 79 scenario, basically. <laughs> they they, they think it's replaying that. That is indeed the parallel that, that, that has been made quite explicitly um, by a number of Israeli leaders, including by the Prime Minister himself, who's, uh, I think, on, on at least two or three occasions over the last fortnight uh, referred to the, to, the, to the Iranian example, uh, where, of course, then, uh, at the time, Iran was a, was a key ally of Israel's and uh, turned into, a, in, it turned into uh, its most dangerous enemy now. And, um, of course, were that to happen with Egypt, um, that would be you know, far more alarming, given, given the very proximity of, of Egypt and given the, um, the, the degree to which Israel really depends on the Egyptians to facilitate contact with Palestinian groups and uh, also um, the need that Israel has for uh, Egypt to keep a lid on the Gaza Strip. One of the things that I was sort of getting uh, when I was in, at the Munich Security Conference at the weekend was the strong sense from Westerners, especially the British actually, that Israel really has now got to move on the Middle East peace process and the approach to the Palestinians, particularly on the issue of whether it can go back to freezing settlements. There's a very strong sense that the uh, Israelis now, there's a limited opportunity now for the peace process now that things are changing. Are people discussing that point in in Israel? Is there a sense that people realise they've got to start moving on it? Uh, Well, there is certainly that school of thought but I think what uh, the, the sort of reaction that we've seen is that um, if you're an Israeli right winger and you're a bit sceptical um, about the peace process and talks with the Palestinians, then the events in Egypt have sort of deepened your scepticism. At the same time, um, the kind of pro-peace camp, uh, as, as you say, um, it feels that this is a wake-up call and, and, and it sort of shows that Israel has a, only a small window of opportunity to make a deal with the Palestinians and that this deal has, if anything, become far more urgent as a result of the events in, in Egypt. I think the Israeli government um, <clears throat> and the political right, which of course is you know, a far stronger part of the political spectrum here, um, <clears throat> will see this as a, as, a, as a sort of sign that ultimately perhaps uh, uh, peace treaties cannot be trusted, um, that ultimately Israel will have to depend on its own military, mm. on its own alliances with the U.S., with the West, uh, but that perhaps it has, if anything, done something to erode the faith in a negotiated settlement uh, for, for, for the Arab-Israeli conflict. Tobias Buck in Jerusalem and Heba Saleh in Cairo. Thank you both very much.
Now, in November last year, elections in the Ivory Coast saw a victory for the challenger Alassane Ouattara, a former IMF official who won the election according to United Nations certified results. But incumbent President Laurent Gbagbo has refused to give up power. All Ryan and Financial Times International Economy editor is in Ivory Coast, and earlier she spoke to Fiona Simon. Ola, what's the mood among Ivorians as the standoff between the two rival leaders continues? Um, well, it's very interesting. When you arrive in Abidjan, um, it looks almost like a normal African city. There's still a lot of people on the streets. There's a lot of traders. There's a lot of traffic. It looks quite normal. But when you start talking to people, it quickly becomes clear that people are very reluctant to talk about politics. People are very, um, people are very anxious about the economic situation. Um, a lot of people I spoke to have said they've had to wait a long time to get cooking gas. Um, large businesses have said they find it difficult to get money from the bank. There's a great deal of anxiety about what's going to happen next economically. There's been a series of the, uh, European Union sanctions on Mr. Bagbo and his entourage. Um, there's been a ban on cocoa exports. There's been a ban on dealings with the port. Already, since the West African Central Bank cut its link with Mr. Bagbo, um, people are complaining that it's become more difficult to get cash. There's... Um, a reluctance to talk about politics, but there's a real fear about what's going to happen next economically. How much power does each of the rivals control? Alison Waterer won the election on November 28th, and he was internationally recognised as the winner of the election. Mr Bagbo lost the election but has refused to give up power, so he essentially still has retained control of the trappings of state. Um, Mr Waterer is staying in the Gulf Hotel, surrounded by UN peacekeepers. But he does have control of the central bank accounts. So, in a sense... What Mr. Waterer is hoping is that the European Union sanctions and the ban on cocoa exports will essentially squeeze Mr. Bagbo's finances, ultimately loosening his grip on power. Because what Mr. Bagbo has at the moment is essentially control of the army. He needs to secure that control by continuing to pay them. But the more his finances are squeezed by the sanctions or by the cocoa export ban, then the less, li- the less money he has. Um, so... At the moment, the, situa- the focus is very much sort of on the economic sanctions, what impact they will have on Bagbo, what, how much money Mr. Bagbo has left, how much money he has access to, right. and how long he can continue to keep paying both the army and the civil servants. And these, are, I imagine, they're, they're unknowns, really. What about the international mediation efforts? How's that going? Um, in the immediate aftermath of the election, there was pretty much universal condemnation for Mr. Bagbo's refusal to um, step down from power. But since then, splits have emerged across Africa. Some countries, such as Uganda or South Africa, have sort of have voiced concerns. In Uganda, particularly, they voiced concerns about sort of the the quick recognition of Mr. Watera. There's some sort of feeling or sense that Mr. Watera is a European-backed candidate. There's a push to get Mr. Bagbo out of power. That that chimes with sort of um, a sense in Africa that sort of this is something, this is a solution which is being imposed from outside of Cote d'Ivoire. So the reality is that Mr. Mr. Waterer did win the election. Um, at the African Union meeting that took place last week, clear splits emerged across Africa um, in terms of support for Mr. Uh, Mr. Waterer and support for Mr. Bagbo. And in this week, a panel, a mediation panel, which was set up by the African Union, has been in town and has been meeting with both sides. There's been some speculation that there could be a unity government. But that seems quite unlikely because that wouldn't, I mean, Mr. Bagwood did not want to relinquish power. And Mr. Waterer, obviously, he, want, he is the, he was elected president, so he doesn't, he's not going to go into a unity government where he is not president. 
What's your sense about which of the two leaders is going to win out in the end? Um, I, I think the truth is it's very hard to say. Um, I think no one genuinely knows how much money Mr Bagbo has or how much access to cash he has. Um, he's proven incredibly adept over the past 10 years of remaining in power despite you know, a lot of international criticism. He has somehow always survived. He has wanted to be president for a long time. You know, he is a veteran of the Ivorian political scene. I don't see him going easily. Um, I don't see him giving up easily and going to live in comfort elsewhere. He does not want to give up power. But the sanctions will sort of does damage his ability to continue to pay the people he needs to remain loyal to him, such as the army or the, or the civil servants. I think it's very hard to say how it's going to play out at this stage because the impact of the sanctions is still only just emerging. It's going to take quite a long time for it to sort of appear for it to sort of make itself felt in the economy. And it's not quite clear what will happen then, how people will react to Mr Bagbo, or will they actually blame Mr Water for the sanction um, and the ban on cocoa and the deterioration in the economy. That was all Orion in Ivory Coast. Lastly this week, who will be Jean-Claude Trichet's successor at the European Central Bank in Frankfurt? Axel Weber, Germany's Bundesbank president, has indicated he won't serve a second term. But leaked reports of comments led to a flood of speculation that the 53-year-old former academic economist was also withdrawing from the race to succeed Mr Trichet, who leaves the ECB at the end of October. Quentin Peel, our Berlin correspondent, is on the line. Quentin, how much of a blow would it be to Angela Merkel if Weber withdrew formally as a candidate to succeed Trichet? I think it's a considerable blow. Uh, She was clearly backing him for this job. Um, In fact, since speculation emerged that he wasn't going to run for it, they've at last really confirmed that she was backing him. Um, And so she was very keen, I think, to have a German in the job. It's uh, third time round, third president of the ECB. The first was Dutch, the second was French. And it would be good for German voters to have a German in the job, it's seen, because Germany is clearly the country that is putting up the most money to support the Eurozone and therefore feels, if you like, most committed. But it's not guaranteed, is it? I mean, who are the other candidates now that Weber looks like he's out of the way? Well, the uh, the only declared candidate is Mario Draghi, uh, the president of the Italian Central Bank, who's a very well-qualified candidate and uh, and very respected. The trouble is, one, he's Italian. It's not clear whether Berlusconi, the Italian prime minister, has, if you like, the influence to deliver his man. And there is a slight political black mark against him in that for three years he worked for the investment bank Goldman Sachs, And that's seen as something that at a moment when the public opinion sees investment banks as having been uh, responsible for the financial crisis, putting somebody into such a critical job with that background is difficult. Yes, indeed. He's the one, uh, if you like now, perhaps the front runner. But if he still felt very strongly that Germany really, it's Germany's turn, and I think that feeling is emerging in Paris as well, then I think the second most likely person is Klaus Regling, the former senior civil servant in Germany, Uh, then head of the Economic and Monetary Department in the European Commission, and now head of the European Financial Stability Facility, the Eurozone Rescue Fund. He, I think, would have quite a lot of support, although he's never been a central banker. But other than that, is he pretty qualified for the job? 
oh, I think that uh, intellectually and technically he's very qualified. It is a really nightmare job, if you like. Uh, one, you've got a lot of rather, um, uh, if one might say, sort of strong egos on the board of the European Central Bank. Obviously, it's a multinational institution and therefore slow moving and so on. During a financial crisis like we've been experiencing, the president has a very strong role to play, taking emergency decisions over weekends, for example, making sure that the bank is all pointing in the same direction. And that's been a job that Jean-Claude Trichet, the current president has done extremely well. There is one uh, other alternative, which is that could they find a way of extending Mr. Trichet's mandate? But that would require treaty change, and it's certainly not an easy thing to do. Another thing that would go down in Britain almost badly in Britain, almost certainly, apart from Mario Draghi and Klaus Regling, are there any other candidates? Yes, there are. There's Erkilikkanen, who is a, a current member of the executive of the, of the Bundesbank. He's the, uh, uh, the Finnish central bank governor, former commissioner in Brussels, former Finnish finance minister. So again, very well qualified, small northern country, somebody who would, I think, be fairly well regarded in Germany. But he isn't German. Of course, everybody says nationality doesn't matter. It's technical competence that matters. But uh, at the end of the day, these things are incredibly political. There's one other man I should mention, and that's Yves Mersch, who's the central bank governor from Luxembourg. Um, another multilingual uh, man speaks uh, French and German, therefore uh, rather convenient for him. But given that his prime minister is the chairman of the Eurogroup, that's Jean-Claude Juncker, maybe one too many Luxembourgers. Well, finally, you've mentioned all the runners and riders. I'm going to um, test you a bit on it. Uh, who would you put your money on? I think at this moment... Um, very even between Mario Draghi and Klaus Regeling, but I think I would at this moment still go for the German. Quentin Peel in Berlin, thank you very much indeed. And my thanks to Heba Saleh in Cairo, Tobias Buck in Jerusalem, and Orla Ryan in Ivory Coast. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.